Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. EU foreign ministers signed off this week on negotiating guidelines for the next round of talks with the United Kingdom on the terms of its departure from the European Union. What comes next in the Brexit negotiations? Our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, will tell us how this story is likely to unfold over the coming months. Later, I'll be talking to Tom Hennigan in Brazil about the attempt by former President Lula Inácio Lula da Silva to stage the political comeback of all political comebacks. Is Lula more likely to be in jail before the end of the year than back in the presidential residence in Brasilia? But it's Brexit first this week and Paddy Smith is on the line. Paddy, can you recap for us first just what happened this week? What exactly did the EU foreign ministers agree to in Brussels on Monday? The EU foreign ministers agreed to a set of, of what they called directives, guidelines for the negotiators on the EU side to deal with the British over what's called the transition period, the period after they leave in March next year, uh, before they actually uh, go to London. That period of transition is basically a status quo arrangement, whereby they will continue to behave as if they're members in in all but uh, a role in the decision-making process. So they'll be They'll be excluded from decision making, but have to have. They will have all the rights and obligations of of uh, members. What's called the full acquis of the community. And what's the British position on this? Are they accepting the, of of this arrangement? Well, the British position is slightly odd because it did look as if it had all been squared up pretty much in advance. And uh, David Davis has said that he accepts the principle and they're in favour of the principle of of this status quo arrangement. But he is now muttering about how he wants to say on decisions that will affect them during the course of that period. So if there's new legislation passed by the European Union, he will want to say over uh, that legislation if he is going to be, if the British are going to be bound by it. The European Union is saying, well, look, you're leaving us, and and this is one of the consequences of leaving. You're not part of the decision-making process. We're happy to talk to you, we're happy to consult with you, but we're not going to give you a seat at the table. It doesn't seem unreasonable, though, is it, from the British point of view, that if you're um, continuing for a period to have to abide by the rules of the single market and the customs union, that um, while you're abiding by these rules, that you might have a say in any, any changes that are made to, to the rules, no? Well, it depends really on how you look at it. I mean, the European Union is, is effectively doing the UK a favour by saying, OK, you're going to leave us. You're going to break away from us, but you want to, to retain the benefits of membership for the next period. We, we will let you do that as long as you adhere to the rules, the rules of the single market in particular. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Uh, I think, in fact, what's going on is, is it largely an argument for, for domestic consumption. Uh, Davis is determined uh, to show the Brexiters on his backbenches that he's being tough with the Europeans and he's fighting uh, at every particular point. But he he does actually understand uh, the reality that he's facing and will back down gracefully at some stage in the not-too-distant future. And so, Paddy, there's broad uh, agreement then, I suppose, on the transition arrangements, which will be, as you just said, Britain leaves next March, but then for a period of up to two years, you know, they will continue to abide by the rules um, and, and gain the benefits of, of being a single market and customs union and so on. But what about the, the much more difficult longer term arrangements, The, uh, um, for example, the trade uh, arrangements that will, will pertain between Britain and the EU afterwards? When do negotiations start on, on that? Well, the process of, of drafting guidelines for those talks is underway, but it won't be until 
March probably that we will get a detailed statement from the European Union of of how it sees the, those those talks going and what what its priorities are. And part of the problem is that the British have still not declared what sort of association, what sort of relationship they want to keep with the European Union in the longer term. There's lots of of uh, speculation that they're going to go for a Norway model or a Canadian model, that they uh, are going to be fully aligned in, in, in terms of regulation, or they're not, or they're going to have different degrees of of, of regulation. But it's, it, it's very difficult to get a specific, precise answer from the British who are deeply divided on the, on the issue and who are reluctant, it seems, to take a stand. And if anything, the political instability or disarray in Britain seems to be getting worse rather than better. I mean, there's new speculation this week about Theresa May's future, new evidence of uh, infighting within the Tory party about all of this. So uh, how how is that playing out at the Brussels end? I mean, is that is that making things very difficult um, at the Brussels end to sort of anticipate how these negotiations might run? I, I think there's a genuine sense of bewilderment at what's going on in London and a somewhat, you know, plaintive, we will do what we can, but we can't do anything until you tell us what you want. And uh, Barnier was very clear at, the, at his press conference on, on, on Monday that um, it's up to the British now to, to, to make their position clear. That they're, uh, until they do that, nobody else will be able to do anything on the, on the European side. Um, there is a willingness um, to engage positively. There is, there's a strong feeling that they would really like to have a trade deal which has as few uh, uh, border issues uh, as, as possible. And indeed, is, that is necessary if, if the uh, Northern Ireland part of, of the uh, deal done in December is, is to be seen through. Uh, so it's a question of, of uh, getting the, the whole act started. And um, when that will happen, we'll just wait and see. And what actually happens now, Paddy, over the next few weeks? I mean, what, what, what's, what's the process now from, from, say, over the next couple of months? Well, what will happen first is that there will be the beginning of talks about, the, about transition. Uh, alongside those talks will be also discussions on elements of what was called the divorce agreement, which was what was signed up to in, in uh, December, that those would be completed. As Bernier said, uh, sufficient progress was made in those talks, but sufficient progress isn't complete progress. So they have a number of issues uh, to deal with still in those, those talks before the trade talks start. And the other thing which is happening uh, is that the legal services of the Commission are drafting the uh, withdrawal agreement, which is a treaty that will have to be signed off on by all of the member states individually, and which will incorporate all of the agreements uh, that, that were made in the, in the divorce agreement in, in December. Uh, that is a, going to be quite a complicated document, not least in respect of the commitments the British have made on the border in Ireland, because a lot of those commitments are all tied up with the trade talks. But anyway, we're assured that there will be a formula which maintains that overarching commitment to no uh, visible border um, on, on the island of Ireland. And what kind of timetable are we looking at now? I mean, Britain is, leaves next March, but presumably a lot of these things will have to be tied down well in advance of that date. Yeah, we're, we're talking about a couple of summits uh, between now and, and June 
the second one will be will be involved heavily in in, in agreeing on the um, guidelines for the for the trade talks. The initial one uh, at the end of February will talk, will approve uh, its hope to the transition uh, agreement, um, and at some point there will also be a, a, a meeting to to discuss the terms of the uh, treaty that that has to be uh, done. So it, 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 talks will continue on several fronts. Uh, and indeed, not least of them, uh, on, on an Irish, particular Irish strand of, of discussions, which will, will go on in parallel with all the others. So far, Paddy, there's been impressive unity among the, the EU 27, the, the, the 27 without Britain, um, in their approach to the talks. And, you know, you mentioned Ireland there, for example, you know, got, got full backing of all of the other member states in terms of our concerns about the Irish border. Um, is that a unity likely to continue now in the next few months or is, will it come under more strain in this next phase? It it's inevitable that some member states will have different preoccupations to ours uh, in, in the trade talks and will be keener to be tough on, on things that we were perhaps want to turn a blind eye to or to, to be sympathetic on. So there will different strands of um, the European position will emerge over, over the course of time. But my feeling is is that the is that the basic unity of the 27 will remain, and that there won't be any uh, fundamental issues of of principle uh, that they that they will clash over, and they will have to agree the position uh, on, on a unanimous basis at the end. And each member state will then have to ratify an agreement. Is that right? Will that have to take place before March, or can that take place during the transition? No, that'll have to take place before March, and that's why the determination is that the treaty will be completed by October, so that the, there is time for ratification. Now, there's something like 35 national parliaments, uh, as well as the European Parliament, all have to approve it. Uh, that includes, for example, in, in, in Belgium, uh, I think it's four different parliaments. Uh, reflecting the different nationalities, and in other countries there are also several several parliaments, all of which will have a, 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 the potential to say no uh, to to the treaty. So it, it it's going to be quite a balancing act. And just to return briefly, Paddy, to the, the the trade issue, which I think probably will be one of the most problematic, I imagine, in negotiations. One one of the key selling points of the the pro Brexit camp in Britain in the lead up to their referendum was that Britain would be able to go out and do its own trade deals with other countries and wouldn't be tied in with the you know EU deals. But um, has it been clarified uh, um, at what stage can Britain begin negotiating trade deals? Will it be able to do so during the transition next March? It will be able to begin negotiating separate trade deals, bilateral trade deals with, with other countries. Uh, and it will need to do so because there there are something like 70 agreements uh, between the EU and third countries, all of which the UK falls out of, and uh, it will want to get itself back in at, at, at a minimum to the, the level playing field that, 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 is, that exists at the moment. It's, for example, the case that Korea could decide that it's not going to admit British goods at EU-level tariffs uh, to its market. So the UK will have to negotiate specifically with the Koreans to ensure that there are a rollover of its provisions, uh, of the provisions of its treaty with, with, the, with the EU during the transition period. But that's only the minimum. That is only the transition arrangements, um, all of which would have to be separately, uh, individually approved by the European Union if, if they're to come into force. In the longer term, uh, the trade agreements that the British will make with America or with uh, Japan or Korea will all have to be uh, uh, 
operationalized after the, the period of transition. They can't begin beforehand and they are likely to take a lot longer to negotiate. Okay. So, Paddy, um, um, how would you characterise the kind of mood in Brussels at this point? I mean, is, is, this thing seems to be causing convulsions in Britain, but is there a sort of a, um, a calmness on the EU side that this the overall process is going as well as it could be envisaged? I think, yes, I think I think that uh, Barnier is well regarded by most of the member states. That's the EU he, chief negotiator, Michel Barnier. He's the chief, yeah. chief negotiator and he, he is a great believer in talking to everybody con- constantly. Uh, and, and so they're all very much up to speed on, on, on what's going on. And they're just waiting for, for the British. And there's a sort of weary resignation here rather than anything else. They're not getting involved in any of the, the histrionics that you're seeing in, in uh, Britain. Paddy, that's great. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks for that. Lula Inácio Lula da Silva, better known to all as simply Lula, is one of Brazil's and indeed South America's most charismatic politicians. Lionised by the left, both at home and abroad, his social spending programmes helped lift many Brazilians out of poverty when he served two successful terms as that country's president between 2003 and 2010. Now, aged 72, he is on the comeback trail and wants to run for president again in elections this year. He remains popular. Opinion polls place him well ahead of all other candidates. But there is a hitch. His conviction last year for corruption and money laundering has left him facing a 12-year jail sentence. His attempt last week to have his conviction overturned was rejected by the courts. Tom Hennigan joins me now from Sao Paulo. Tom, before you bring us up to date with this story and look at where it's going next, can you remind us what it was about Lula that made him such a popular figure and indeed such a successful president of Brazil in the first place? I think um, the first is that he was the country's first president to come uh, from the the poor. He was born into extreme poverty in the drought-stricken northeast. His family migrated to uh, the industrial hub of Sao Paulo on the back of a truck. Um, they lived in slums and he had to work his way up to become a machine mechanic uh, in the car industry. He entered into the labor unions. He fought for workers' rights during the dictatorship. And all the way through his political rise, he's always had a um, fantastic ability to communicate political ideas to ordinary people in a country where politics is normally the work of, uh, you would say, from the middle class up to the elite. Uh, very few political leaders in Brazilian history with a national reach that were from the country's poor. And so I think that is the first thing in a in a in a country with huge social inequality, with huge social divisions. Lula was the first political leader that came from those who were disadvantaged and was able to communicate politically with them in a way that no one else had been able to achieve. And then I think the other thing was that, and I think this comes from his union background, which in in South America, uh, the unions have always been um, quite militant, but always ready to strike a deal with bosses and politicians as long as they were able to get a cut um, of of the pie for their own workers, uh, that Lula was a conciliator. Um, He didn't start out that way when he ran in 1989 uh, before the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was on a very radical platform that he later repudiated. um, And after that, he 
was able to conciliate the left with Brazilian capital. And that made him very popular then also with um, wealthy Brazilians, particularly big business, who thought that here is a person that they could do business with. And that's how he proved to be in power. So I think that's really the secret of his success. And when he was elected in 2003, I think he was one of a number of, maybe the most prominent of a number of kind of left-wing leaders elected in South America. So he, he kind of, um, he, he was kind of a symbol of almost a change in, in the political scene there, wasn't he? He represented that Absolutely. in a way. Absolutely. Uh, he was part of the so-called pink tide that swept the, the continent and nearly every country with one or two notable exceptions um, for many of them for the first time in their history elected um, leftist regimes, uh, leftist movements, social movements were brought to power. And obviously Brazil as by far the most populous um, uh democracy in the region and by far the biggest economy, uh, Lula's getting to power was was the most significant of um, all those countries that included Venezuela with uh, Hugo Chavez, all the way to Evo Morales in Bolivia. Um, and um, I think Lula was also seen by um, international community and particularly financial markets as here was a guy, um, going back to what I was saying about his conciliator role within Brazil, was someone who was able to say, look, we're, we're um, something new and distinct in the region, but we're not going to be overly radical. Um, Lula was able to go to world social forums uh, and talk to left-wing activists and anti-globalization activists at those. He also went to Davos and was a bit of a star at those meetings as well. So he was able to talk to both of those camps very well. And when he when he left office in 2010, his standing was undiminished, and uh, the Workers Party that he'd helped, that he he was one of the founders, you know, continued in power. Absolutely. Like when Lula left, uh, you know, he was as as Barack Obama famously famously called him the man. His approval rating in Brazil was somewhere around 80 percent. And his standing was such that he was able to, first of all, impose um, Dilma Rousseff uh, as, uh, on, on his own party. The, she was not very popular within the Workers' Party in Brazil, um, who had uh, other uh, candidates, strong candidates with much uh, deeper histories within the party who were keen maybe to run for the presidency. And Lula was able to say no. And because of his stature, impose her on the party as the candidate. And then despite the fact that she had very little charisma of herself, was seen as a kind of a doer technocrat, he was able to get her elected. And that was, um, I think, just a reflection of his own star power. So he left office uh, having had a very successful uh, eight years in power and then was going to be seen as sort of the eminent Greece behind uh, his protege who he raised to the presidency after him. And now Tom, we almost have to park the Lula narrative just for a moment because I'm going to um, uh, just come to the, the car wash corruption investigation that you've been reporting on in Brazil for the past three or four years and the relevance to that and Lula will become apparent in a moment but I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something impossible first. Can you remind people in like a few sentences what car wash is, how big this corruption investigation is and, and how much of a shadow it has cast over politics and, and business life in Brazil? Well, it's, it's a terrible um, shadow it's cast. It's absolutely um, overturned Brazilian politics in many ways. Um, it is a multi-billion euro scandal 
Uh, the US Department of Justice said it's one of the worst bribe, um, bribery schemes that it has ever come across. It has spread to a whole bunch of countries around South America into Africa. It's uh, even caught up um, the former government in Portugal. Um, and what it started out as back in 2014 was an investigation into money launderers here in Brazil. And uh, investigators just kept following their leads. And eventually they found out that these money launderers were laundering uh, cash for people linked to the state oil company Petrobras. And that was uh, cash uh, was uh, bribes paid for contracts. And a lot of the money was being passed on then to politicians, politicians from uh, uh, all of the parties in Brazil. But because the Workers' Party had been in power since 2003, and this is the period that investigators were closely looking at, it ended up catching the Workers' Party in Brazil's biggest ever corruption scandal. And that had major implications then for Lula after he left power. And how much of a shock was it when Lula's name, his own name then came up in association with this investigation and it became clear that the investigators had him in their sights? I think for his supporters, uh, if this was seen as um, one of two things. One, as a witch hunt that Lula would never do anything like this. And then for some others, it was a case of, OK, well, maybe Lula and the Workers' Party were involved in corruption and not corruption for personal gain, but corruption to fill party coffers with off-the-books money that they could then use to bankroll very expensive election campaigns in Brazil. And so I think some people, including some PT uh, Workers' Party leaders, were able to say, OK, look, you know, we've done this, it was wrong, but this is what everyone does in Brazil, so we're no different from anyone else. And why are the prosecutors focusing on us and not on the other parties who are all doing the same thing? Um, for opponents, and particularly uh, what you would call the, the sort of harder right-wing opponents of the Workers' Party, they definitely tried to portray this scandal as uh, something that uh, came rubber-stamped with the kind of the PT logo on it. And they used that very effectively politically, even though we now know, because prosecutors have started going after other parties, including some of the parties that were most... Um, antagonistic to the PT uh, throughout the last couple of decades in, in Brazilian politics, that in fact all the parties were up to uh, similar sorts of schemes, whether it was in Petrobras, the oil company, or in some of the power generating utilities or a whole range of um, industries that where there was state control, either the federal or at state government level. And of course, you say Lula supporters say there was no personal gain involved, but of course he is accused or uh, convicted indeed of having ex- um, accepted a luxury beach apartment in return for providing favours. Isn't, isn't that right? Is, is that kind of the nub of the case against him? That was the the case that he was convicted of last year, and and the conviction was upheld um, uh, last week. That was um, again. Workers' Party supporters have uh, vehemently protested that there is evidence to link Lula to this apartment. Um, a judge found actually there was plenty of evidence. Three of his senior colleagues have, um, in an appeal court, have have um, very strongly endorsed that original conviction. Um, and what I think for for Lula is is the tragedy of this case is that it looks like. It was certain um, personal benefits were passed on to him and to his family by the companies that were 
winning these large public contracts um, and then being able to massively overbill for them, they became very close to Lula. And it seems almost like that the that the workers out of gratitude or the these um, construction companies out of gratitude for everything that Lula had done for them uh, for his retirement, decided to put together a few benefits for him. That's the case against him. Lula is going to appeal it up to higher courts. But there are many troubling indications that as well as money being creamed off and going into party coffers, that some senior politicians, Lula included them, also had a few personal baubles thrown in for good measure as well. Right. Now, and apart from the, the, the jail sentence hanging over him, as you mentioned, he was convicted and sentenced to 10 years, I think. And then last week, that uh, sentence was actually increased to 12. Um, but the, the, the critical thing here for him, apart from the jail sentence, is, as things stand, he is barred now from running for office again. Isn't that right? And he wants to run in October exactly. in, the, in the presidential election in October. Exactly. Uh, so in Brazil, um, there is a law that says once... A a politician has a a conviction upheld by an appeal court. He is no longer eligible to hold public office. So uh, that means that Lula, uh, as things currently stand, though this decision has to be rubber stamped, is not eligible to run in the presidential election in October. And, you know, there's two things, I think, to Lula's candidacy. One is without Lula, the Workers' Party will have much more difficulty getting the number of votes they would be able to get with Lula. And that means they would have no chance of winning back the presidency. And for the party, even more troubling would be that it would make it much more difficult for them to elect governors, to elect senators and to elect deputies to the lower house of Congress. So the party without Lula on the ballot, without him leading the slate of of workers' party candidates in Brazil, the party runs the risk of seeing it reduced to a much smaller block politically than it is at the moment. Um, the other side of Lula's candidacy was it has been used as a way to try and intimidate the, the ju- judicial system and the judiciary into saying you should not convict Lula because, look, over a third of Brazilians want him to be their president the election would lose all legitimacy if you exclude him as a candidate. So I think there is a suspicion that one of the reasons that Lula is running for the presidency is to avoid prison. And what avenues are open to him now, Tom, to try to have this conviction overturned? Does he still have some legal avenues left? There are still legal avenues left. In Brazil, there are nearly always legal avenues left. Uh, The Brazilian judiciary is uh, such a slow-moving one that you have almost limitless um, uh, recourse to appeals. Uh, Lula's uh, own appeal, which was heard last week, that was actually brought forward uh, to, you know, and, and his own supporters said, look, this is another sign of, of how the judiciary are, are conducting a witch hunt to try and exclude them as quickly as possible. Other people said, look, it was brought forward uh, because we wanted some clarity uh, for you know going into an election year, whether he was going to be able to stand or not. But it took six months to get the appeal done. That was at a very rapid rate. Uh, he will now appeal to higher courts in Brasilia. Um, he has two um, more uh, courts there that he can appeal to um, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And his candidacy then will also be discussed he, he has vowed to go ahead and register as a candidate for the election. Um, and then that will be debated by the the top electoral court in Brazil. And the problem with 
a lot of what's happened in Brazil because of these corruption investigations and because of the chaos it's caused in politics is that increasingly courts are being asked to make political decisions. And some of the judges have shown themselves to be very willing to do this. Um, and others have shown themselves to be very reluctant. And you have, uh, even within certain courts, up to the Supreme Court, you have this push and pull between judges about, you know, what extent the court should be involving themselves in this and individual judges handing out injunctions. And it, there's a certain kind of judicialization of Brazilian politics, and that is leading to a level of uncertainty in Brazilian politics. And one of the issues is that people are going, look, according to the law, Lula's out of the race, but it goes to courts now and who knows what the judges are going to decide there or when they're going to decide it. And if the timetable slips, that could create a situation where Lula's candidacy could go right up towards the actual vote itself before the court makes a decision. And if he's still leading in the polls, who wants to take Lula out of the race uh, a couple of weeks before the election, would would a judge have or would a court have the courage to do that? No one knows. And Tom, just just to wrap it up, you, 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 what you touched on there, it's kind of extraordinary that if Lula doesn't run, that there seems to be nobody else on the left kind of capable of of filling his shoes and and winning uh, popular support. What about on the right? There is a candidate actually on the quite on the far right who is kind of emerging in, 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 into the picture as well. Just tell us something about him. Um, Jair Bolsonaro is, uh, he's been a congressman for about 20 years, uh, always been on the fringe of Brazilian politics, a former military officer, uh, politely people call him as being from the far right, the extreme right. Uh, I think he's actually a proto-fascist. Um, he has been running very much on a, you know, I'm going to clean up Brasilia, um, and put the country to rights, uh, if I get into power. He's polling at around 20% in the polls. Um, and I think there is a major preoccupation uh, on the centre-right in Brazil that he is attracting a certain number of their traditional voters, even though he is nothing like what we would call the centre-right. He's not a fan of, of even free markets. He prefers a strong state like a proper... He's a he's a Latin, right-wing Latin um, strongman of old tradition. Um, and I think he is someone, though, who has a major inbuilt challenge to overcome, which is he lacks party alliances in Brazil. So at the moment, he's running quite well in the polls. But once the campaign proper starts and TV takes over, he will have very little TV time. So he has he has a major obstacle still to overcome, um, which I think is the main hope that once the TV campaign starts, the traditional parties will have a lot more TV time and their candidates will start rising in the polls. But the fact that you have someone who has been caught many times giving openly racist, openly homophobic, openly misogynist, openly anti-democratic statements to the media over a long period of his career is currently one in five Brazilians are saying they want him for their next president. So it is worrying. Worrying, but it's certainly not boring. Anyway, Tom, listen, thanks for that. Okay, thanks, Chris. Bye. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.